My name is Inu Barbie. I'm a PhD candidate at Georgetown University. I'm serving as your moderator for this panel today on finding the path to teach of success. I encourage you all to be tweeting during this session. Uh, I'll be watching it. And send your comments and questions to the hashtag CatoTTip. And uh, some of us are on Twitter, so follow us and send us comments. I'm at iBarbie. And Michelle also has her Twitter handle. So please uh, check us online. So what's this panel about? Well, the US and the EU make up one third of total goods and services trade, totaling $2.7 billion a day. This amounts to nearly half of global economic output, and this is essentially the world's largest economic relationship. It is no wonder, then, when President Obama announced in his 2013 State of the Union address that he was launching the TTIP negotiations, that this was met with incredible fanfare. The benefits are large. That is without doubt. But the stakes are also high. And the issues we need to resolve in order to get to a deal are incredibly diverse. And given that two years has passed without a clear idea of where the end point of the negotiations may lie, we need to sort of ask, that first tank of gas is completely empty. Where do we go from here? So this panel will address whether we can achieve a successful round of TTIP negotiations, how we're going to complete them, highlighting the key challenges along the way. We're first going to start with the specific high-stake issues that have been cited as areas of substantial benefit to both parties. Gary Huffbauer of the Peterson Institute will begin the discussion with an overview of the challenges to liberalizing government procurement. This issue highlights a key challenge that EU negotiators have been very wary of, which is the role of the United States individual states in the negotiating process, which could put a little bit of a wrinkle in the deal. Michelle Egan from American University will then focus our attention on another high-stakes issue, regulatory cooperation. This is not the first time you're going to hear about this today, and you'll hear about it again and again. Some have cited the removal of regulatory trade barriers to amount to 2.5 to 3% of an increase in GDP if we can get rid of all of them. This is enormous. Michelle is going to set the efforts in the TTIP into the context of other FTAs that are dealing with regulatory coherence chapters and show what we can learn about the scope and scale of what could be included in the TTIP negotiations, given what we've already seen. And to round out the discussion, John Gillingham from Harvard University, historian who has a forthcoming book coming out. When is it, John? In May, so check that out. John is going to focus us in on a really important issue that I think sometimes we take for granted, which is domestic politics. All politics really is local, and the TTIP certainly is that. And particularly, his focus will be on the EU side of the domestic political issues. So the commission has been forcefully trying to push through this deal, and John will give us a little bit of a taste of what this means for the completion of the TTIP. So the common thread among these presentations really lies in the fact that they all pinpoint specific challenges to completing this deal, as well as opportunities to its full completion. And in the end, they're going to offer some insight into what we should expect in the coming rounds. And the round coming next week, I think this is quite timely. So with that, I'm going to turn the podium over to Gary. And uh, we can start. Well, thanks very much, Inu, and I want to thank the Cato Institute for inviting me, and particularly I want to thank Dan Eikenson because he knows I think he's wrong on XM Bank and ISDS and probably six other subjects, but nevertheless, he invited me to come. It just shows he's an open-minded guy. So <clears throat> I, I would like to start with just a few comments, a broad overview type of comments on the, on the TTIP and then... Uh, move into the government procurement issue. Uh, the, uh, the good thing, I think, about TTIP, by contrast with TPP in terms of finally achieving TTIP, is that it's not an ideological debate. I think, uh, uh, despite what Celeste Drake said, uh, it'll be hard for the opponents to mobilize the same emotional energy against TTIP that they have <coughs> gathered against um, TPP. Um, but there will be these very strong sectoral opponents uh, dealing with ISDS, uh, regulatory coherence. The VW uh, episode will be rehearsed many times, service liberalization, 
cyber issues and so forth. So those sectoral disputes will occupy a lot of energy. In my view, uh, this uh, will not be achieved as a single kind of mega agreement. That's, in fact, I think a mistake. I think it should be thought of as a decade-long project, and it ought to be broken into parts. And though it was said there, nothing is easy, there are actually some parts which are easier than others, and uh, that the uh, negotiators ought to work, work out some kind of snapback if we don't go on to the harder issues after we've dealt with the easier ones. So um, that would be my second point. Uh, I think it's very hard, uh, uh, in addition to the sectoral interest, to negotiate anything meanif meaningful when you have two very slow-growing economies, the U.S. doing better than Europe now, but who knows in 2017 how the growth numbers will look. And even for 2016, the, the most recent projections are just 2.5% growth in the U.S., which is not really great. And uh, I, I regard this as an enormous failure of our macroeconomic leaders. The, um, uh, the uh, achievement of TPP, TTIP, and so forth is mainly on the supply side. And we're, when you're underperforming on the demand side of the economy right across the board, it's hard to get much uh, enthusiasm for increasing the supply limits. Now, and the final point, final overview point I'd make is on uh, uh, recurring to something said in the last panel. Uh, it was pointed out that the FAA uh, agrees with its European partners on, you know, Airbus and uh, Boeing. But the point is that there, the FAA determines flight safety and civil aviation for the whole world. There's one regulator, and it's the FAA, and everybody else is quite secondary and says, me too. That's not the case for baby rattles. And it's not the case for autos. And the turf interests of regulators in not being put out of business is extremely strong. So uh, that makes the regulatory coherence one of these kind of wished for things that I think should be regarded as a very long-term enterprise. Now turning to government procurement. I'm delighted, as were members of the previous panel, that government procurement is an insisted item by the Europeans. It's about 10 to 15 percent of GDP is government procurement across, uh, across North America and, uh, and Europe. That's a big share. It has not much been liberalized. Um, and <clears throat> government procurement represents this unholy alliance, which uh, I assume Cato denounces, uh, between government officials and local suppliers. It's as simple as that. And, uh, you know, this is the way you give the money to your supporters on the business side in your jurisdiction. You procure from them. And right here in D.C., we have some of the best examples that you'll find in the whole United States, but they're certainly not isolated. So uh, <clears throat> it really needs to be opened up uh, for the, really the benefit of uh, taxpayers and consumers everywhere. Now, in the government procurement agreement in the WTO, we have very high thresholds for anything to do with construction. A lot of government procurement has something to do with construction. It's about $5 million before foreign firms can bid. For other products, it's, it's much lower, about 130,000 special drawing rights in the, um, in the WTO. Uh, in Korea, with a Korea-U.S. agreement, we got it down to 100,000 for everything else but not construction. <clears throat> so that was a step forward. Um, the U.S. formula for dealing with government procurement, <clears throat> which was pledged by uh, Ambassador Froman <clears throat> early on in the negotiations in the TPP and was respected, so I'm told, in the fine text of the TPP, is we're not going to ask the subfederal units, that's the states and the big cities, to do anything. We don't have to do anything. And so that has been the U.S. negotiating approach for some time now, since NAFTA. The states 
can volunteer, can volunteer. And in NAFTA, about 20 of them did put on different schedules, different lists. In subsequent agreements, many fewer have actually subscribed. And an awful lot of procurement is done at the subfederal level. And so it's basically insulated from the, um, uh, <coughs> Uh, from the uh, from these liberalizing effect of these agreements, which is a great shame, but hopefully the EU will pull up our socks on this one. Now, the U.S. Trade Representative has long offered what I regard as a bogus legal explanation for this. Uh, they say we can't do it, but all you have to do is read Article One, Section Eight of the U.S. Constitution, and you know they can do it. And if you know anything about, you know, the federal government's power over the congressional power over interstate commerce, it's, it's just absolutely clear. The real reason, of course, is the political pushback from the states. But if they would talk about the real reason, then we might actually begin to make some real progress. So um, as Canada and Europe did in the, uh, in the CETA agreement, and it's amazing what has been done, and Canada, all the provinces have signed up, and most of the big municipalities have signed up to open procurement. So that's, uh, there will be some very interesting econometrics coming out of that after a few years of implementation to see the reduction in costs. Uh, but given this political rationale for the USTR failing, uh, we make a couple of suggestions in our uh, uh, paper, which is online. Um, uh, we were told that, um, that uh, procurement is next up, February 2016, supposedly they'll start discussion. Um, so what we would say is one possible solution is that some states should band together where they have a common interest versus Europe and put forward that common interest through the USTR uh, in exchange for uh, opening their procurement. In other words, the states participate in the negotiation. That probably would be a horrible thought to the USDR, but, but that would be one way to make some forward progress. Uh, another way, which is more top-down and is eminently feasible because we do it all the time, is that when the federal government provides a substantial amount of funds for state or municipal uh, projects, that there ought to be a tracing mechanism, and that procurement should then be open to um, European competition uh, in the TTIP as part of the uh, as part of the bargain. And um, a final suggestion I've offered for a couple of years now—it hasn't gotten much traction, possibly never will—but that the Europeans could say, uh, and we could reciprocally say to them, but the Europeans could say. Okay, a U.S. firm which wants to bid on a European project, it's free to bid, provided that a majority of its workers are employed in states which subscribed to the, um, put up a, a meaningful schedule to the procurement agreement. And so you would mobilize then the big firms, which dominate trade, um, to lobby then in state governments where they have a tremendous amount of power to sign on. Thank you very much. It's worthwhile today looking at what we're actually dealing with here. And I'm delighted to be at Cato because the title of the panel is Finding the Path to TTIP Success. And I think the first panel showed us that within countries, trade is an ever more polarizing issue. The expectations for trade are higher due to austerity, the, it's as a possible off-budget source of growth, um, even a promise for structural reform, which was obviously important for Japan and Korea. We're expecting trade to do more. And while we know a lot about the literature from the domestic politics of trade, we tended to focus, and we heard a little bit this morning, on the interest and preferences of economic actors and lobbying strategies to reach a trade agreement. But I think we also need to think about the crucial trade-offs between legitimacy, efficiency, 
and political pragmatism. And that trade-off, squaring those uh, three corners of the triangle, is going to be very difficult. The trade environment is also more complex, which came up this morning, due to the complexity of overlapping trade regimes. We're dealing with the US and the EU and others in plurilateral, multilateral, and other regional environments. And so there's sort of a, a broader network, not just sort of TTIP going on here, of which the US and EU are part of and are not part of. And so the first comment that I want to raise is also the other developments that are making, that are sort of take place against the background and context of TTIP. The first one is the changing terms of international trade. It's no longer about reciprocity. It's about regulatory trade policy. And that's very distinctive because it brings up the politics of precaution. In the US and the EU, you can't be subject to the same reciprocity or trade-offs. You can't negotiate in the same way as tariffs. That's my first point. The second point is that tariffs or subsidies are public, and they can be negotiated by trade negotiators. But many rules and standards are private, and these different regulatory rules can impact the trading system. They're set by a range of private trade associations, professional bodies, or international forums, ASTM, IEEE, CEN, CENELEC. These private standards then can be incorporated or referenced in government regulations. And that can close off alternative methods of equivalence or compliance, and it can impact market access using private standards referenced in government regulations. The third issue is that global supply chains have profoundly affected the patterns of international trade and production. But the interesting thing about TTIP is that many firms, unlike a lot of other trade agreements, put in joint proposals in many sectors. We've sort of set it out as the US wants this, the EU wants that. But in chemicals, auto, pharma, and labor, um, the, there were a lot of joint proposals at the beginning of the negotiation process. So although production systems are not national, there has been some level of coordination of requests in this uh, transatlantic trade agreement. And my last point would be when the agreement is done has come up today. When will it be signed? 2016, 2017. Sean Donnan talked about the speculation of the timing. I think we need to look beyond the negotiations. One of the issues that's very important that Gary raised is the division of competences. Who has primary or shared jurisdiction? And this is an important issue for Europe now because the EU is in court about the Singapore agreement about whether it's a mixed competence or a shared competence. And that's very important. So the issue then is the inclusion or not of subnational authorities and whether that requires changes in legislation. And then I think we need to distinguish beyond the negotiations the procedural process of ratification, the formal requirements of publishing the document, going to USITC, from the more political process of compliance. And what we can expect from that implementation and compliance of an agreement is that we will have a need for compliance mechanisms. There will be misinformation and there will be continued regulatory barriers. And so given that, what is TTIP? And I think the negotiations have been organized into three areas, three broad areas. Market access for goods and services, that's tariffs and rules of origin, regulatory issues and procedures, and the rules concerning investment, intellectual property, labor, the environment, and what we might call new issues, such as state-owned enterprises and regulatory coherence. But the one thing to remember about TTIP is that both the US and the EU have been using regional free trade agreements or regional trade agreements, as Susan said this morning, to introduce new issues. It's put, and so now they've sort of pushed themselves into these precedent-setting regional trade agreements. Now they've got an opportunity to pursue a similar agreement transatlantically. And so the US tends to use a model of chorus, 
the Korea uh, Free Trade Agreement. But the EU has used very many different models. Its model with the African-Caribbean Pacific is very, very different. It's now revising its first-generation agreement with Mexico, and it has some stronger WTO plus commitments in CETA, the Canadian one. So the EU has a, a very mixed bag. So after more than two years and 10 rounds, substantive differences remain. But we're really in the early stages. If we're honest here and we look at how long it took to do CETA or TPP, it does highlight the difficulties of reconciling legitimacy, expediency, and efficiency. So I could think, like Gary, we can expect some very many um, uh, long-term negotiations. Should I put down? Um, you know, the one thing that we need to remember is this is a living agreement. So we can also expect some issues to be shelved or de dealt with later on. I think it's going to be a long-term process. And if we look at what's actually done now, you know, of the sort of sectors, the only one that's actually had any proposals on the table and movement has been in textiles. It's highly likely that some of them are going to be shelved or not dealt with during this agreement. I don't know if a living agreement... You know, you pointed out that you don't think there'll be one ambitious agreement. I'm in accord with that. So the state of negotiations are, you know, if you look at what we've actually offered, you know, tariff offers have been exchanged. You know, there are going to be discussions on public procurement, but there's the exclusion of the states. The regulatory cooperation, the textile sector is the only one with shared positions. Others will be negotiated at a later date. And so we have some, th uh, some movement in the area of rules with customs and trade facilitation, and we also have a draft consolidated text on SMEs. And so we are making progress, but it's going to take us some time, as we expect with any trade agreement. But the interesting thing about TTIP is many of the issues under negotiation are not new. We, they've been the subject of continual negotiations and discussions for more than two decades to reduce regulatory barriers promote regulatory cooperation. This is not a tabula rasa. This is not a blank slate. We've been trying to have mutual recognition agreements, early warning systems, good manufacturing practices. We've got a lot of anachronisms to remember that we've built on. Transatlantic Business Dialogue, Transatlantic Economic Council, Transatlantic Economic Partnership. So I think that's very important. So regulatory cooperation is the key chapter to the overall success of TTIP. Um, there are lots of examples of these non-tariff barriers, technical barriers to trade due to differences in regulations. We have differences in import licensing, customs valuation, pre-shipment inspection, rules of origin, as well as the TBTs in industrial goods and SPS in agriculture, such as domestic standardization rules, double conformity assessment, special labeling. So regulatory cooperation is very difficult because it's a trust-building issue. It's not a typical market access issue that can be dealt with in a traditional reciprocal manner. So the title of the panel was, what will it need to be truly ambitious in scope? And so I think if we want regulatory coherence and cooperation, we're going to have to realize we're going to have to have a wide range of regulatory instruments. Some of it might be just an exchange of information. Some of it will be good manufacturing uh, practice guidelines. Some of it will be mutual recognition of conformity assessment bodies. Some of it will be joint impact assessment. And some of it will be, most importantly, upstream regulatory cooperation for future innovative technologies. That will be the range. No sector will get the same thing. It will not be a one-size-fits-all. And the second point, as an outsider and as a European, I'm looking very strongly at the revision of the OMB circular A119, and Europeans should be looking at that more carefully. And finally, so what, what, what can we get? How can we get to an agreement? I sort of think it's like pick and mix sweets. I think we can borrow from existing free trade agreements, and I'll give you one example on the US side and one on the, America, uh, the European side. The US-Australia Free Trade Agreement, it has enhanced commitments to accord equivalency upon request of one party to standards, regulation, or conformity assessment of the other party. And there is an obligation to provide justification if equivalence is not granted. 
That's actually quite important. The second one is the CETA protocol, the US-EU, uh, the US, uh, the EU-Canada uh, Canadian Protocol on Conformity Assessment. It's buried in the CETA 1,500 document, but it's very important. It's a wide-ranging protocol on mutual recognition of conformity assessment in many sectors. If we want to talk about business, we want to talk about equivalence, we want to talk about regulatory cooperation, take a look and pick a mix at other free trade agreements. And so finding the path to TTIP success, because I'm an academic and I'm not actually in the room with the trade negotiators, I can actually put some proposals out there to find the path. The first one, negotiators need to evaluate best practice efforts to promote regulatory cooperation through early warning systems, mutual recognition, and safe harbor principles. A lot of us remember the mutual recognition agreements from a decade ago, and they tended to provide minor cost advantages, so we don't want to think about them again. But we should pay attention to the ones that were successful. Um, Marjorie mentioned them this morning. But the US certification of aircraft agreement and the veterinary agreement on best practices might be a model to think and reflect on, number one. Number two, secondly, we focused a lot of attention on institutions. And I know I heard somebody this morning talk, Cato doesn't like new institutions. But we focused on the proposed regulatory cooperation council. But any new institutional framework has to have a scope has to have a purpose with deadlines and adequate funding. If you're going to use the Regulatory Cooperation Council between Canada and the United States, the United States and Mexico, it has had minimal impact due to funding shortfalls. It's fostered dual bilateralism rather than promoting North American integration. So if OIRA and the European Commission can learn from these earlier efforts, my suggestion is that you look at the Mutual Information Directive of the EU. That provides information exchange. It even provides standstill agreements and arrangements in proposing your regulation and standards, and you have to notify new and proposed standards at the national level. It has been one of the most successful ways that we have presented, prevented new tariff barriers from emerging in Europe. We have it on the books. It's exactly, perhaps, what the USTR is looking for. And then finally, the European standards bodies and the American National Standards Institute should avoid the ultimately unwinnable debate about the respective benefits of their organizational structures. We're not going anywhere trying to change each other's standards system. Instead, I think we should start looking beyond TTIP and look at the international forums that we already have that promote uh, international standardization. Why? Because the UNIC also does the labeling of chemicals. The International Conference on the Harmonization of Technical Requirements for Registration of Pharmaceuticals, known in the lingo as ICH, uh, looks at registration of pharmaceuticals. There are even international forums for medical devices promoting regulatory convergence and guidelines. That would give us more access, more commonality beyond simply the US and EU market. So to conclude, there are a lot of challenges in making this a living agreement. But we should look at FTAs like CETA and TTIP. What are they doing? Are they re-examining their regulatory and standards objectives? Are they sharing best practices? Are they paying attention to monitoring and review? How successful they will deal with the post-draft, the implementation and compliance issue, will be the real success of TTIP. Personally, I think reading all of this, far too much attention has focused on the differences in procedures between the two regulatory systems. I think it's much more productive to focus on the identification of the equivalent uh, levels of protection than the systemic differences. And Marjorie Charlin made that point very effectively with baby rattles this morning. Thank you.
I've called this little talk the European Union and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. A crucial might have been. The promise of TTIP is great, but its prospects are dim. The reason is obvious. The European Union is an unsuitable negotiating partner. This is a pity, for what is at stake is the survival of the EU as a viable institution. And as I speak, the odds are turning against it. The refugee tragedy, the Volkswagen scandal, and the recent judgment of the European Court of Justice declaring the safe harbor agreement illegal are all ill omens, but token an escalation of the grave crisis now facing Brussels and represent, lest this be unclear, heavy blows to TTIP. What has gone wrong with the European Union? The story is a long one that will take us back to the very origins of the institution, and in particular to the lack of provisions in its design for democratic representation, a fatal flaw. As a result, there is no European demos. Since the time available to me is short, I can only touch on the historical origins of the present problems as they affect the theme of the conference. By way of introduction, allow me to simply to assert at this point that as an agent of liberalization in the European economy, the EU's record is at best only mixed. Over the past 50 or so years of the European Union's history, the competition principle of the market economy and the industrial policy characteristic of state capitalism have vied one another for primacy in policy and as principles of economic organization. The contestation continues. Thus, the much heralded single European market launched in 18, excuse me, 1986 is far from complete, and progress towards it has been only gradual since 2005 when the French rejected the proposed European Constitution as a referendum. Uh, this is an instructive experience for the EU and deserves a closer look. The anti-ratification movement in that election, in fact, barely touched on the, specific, the specifics of the Constitution itself, in any case an unreadable, not to say incomprehensible document. It focused instead, as many of you may recall, on the symbolic hate figure of the Polish plumber, a despised job thief who threatened to put honest Frenchmen out of work. Underlying this demagogy was a genuine and understandable fear of something deadly serious, namely the services directive, crafted and championed by a forceful advocate of the open economy, former EU commissioner Fritz Bolkestein, with whom I participated in the Cato panel some years ago. In a word, Bolkestein's directive would have opened the largest sector of the European economy to competition in labor markets, which across Europe, of course, remain protected by restrictive practices of many kind. The negative French verdict on the constitutional referendum sent an alarming message for those able to hear it, that that temperamental disorder known as populism was a force to be reckoned with. Now central to the politics of every member state, its influence reaches beyond any establishment parties and is spread unevenly, to be sure, across the ideological spectrum. It is the biggest headache now facing the mandarins of Brussels. Populism is fueled by, by resentment of so-called savage American capitalism, something misplaced, but closer to the mark, misruled by remote and unaccountable UC, EU technocrats. The two quite distinct things often being conflated in the, public, in the politics of the day. Um, I simply mention that to underscore the point that the issue doesn't rest only with uh, the technical skill or the wisdom of negotiators. It will depend upon the public mood. The attempt of the late 1980s and early 1990s by the three-term president of the European Commission, Jacques Delors, to put Europe on a forced march to political unity, to create a superstate, is a source of the EU's present miseries. It is responsible for the huge and increasingly increasingly consequential policy blunders that have since reverberated through European society and wrought havoc. They are the unworkable and wildly overambitious Maastricht Treaty of 1992, the abortive constitutional project of 2004, and the disastrous decision to adopt the euro as a single currency. Together, they have nearly wrecked the EU. The euro project no longer has many serious defenders. The one-size-fits-all approach of the single currency union has driven Europe into an avoidable depression whose end is not in sight, has rent the very fabric of society, set member states against one another, made a mockery of the European dream, and produced an angry and resentful public. At a time when power and influence is shifting to the re-emerging giants of Asia and a new international age of technology dawns, Europe is falling steadily behind. 
The Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership is a potential game changer. Its economic benefits, described to you by others in de greater detail than I can go into, are immense and would be even greater if coupled to the Trans-Pacific Partnership TPP negotiations, which I'm happy to say have now concluded. Nothing like these deals has ever been attempted before. Tariff reduction, as many of you are aware, is only a secondary matter in them. The giant new PACs would also set common standards for the general conduct of business internationally, even provide, even provide the framework of a global economic constitution. Together, the two, TTIP and TPP, would cover 80% of world trade. With Within Europe, as, may, as many of you already have heard, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership would raise GDP by half a point uh, on, on both sides, eliminate the precautionary principle, which frustrates innovation, increase the efficiency of the production chain, promote competition across the union, and thereby increase the flexibility of labor markets. In short, TTIP would serve as a crucial agent of structural reform, the lack of which now now, which experts now universally bewail and about which they can do very little. The Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership could get Europe out of its rut. Some experts have suggested that the, new, that the now concluded um, Pacific, Basin excuse me, Pacific Basin negotiations can galvanize the TTIP deal. TPP will, to be sure, have far-reaching consequences. Once enacted, the United States and its partners will control about 40% of world trade. Moreover, the agreement will transform the domestic economies of many member countries, strengthen American bargaining power, and to quote from one, uh, from one enthusiastic effort, expert, quote, set an agenda for the 21st century, which can be spread not only as a template for subsequent free trade agreements, but can also be multilateralized back to the WTO and thereby provide a new template for global trade relations. The highly uh, successful Pacific Alliance of Chile, Colombia, Mexico, and Peru is seeking an affiliation with TPP, and Korea, Thailand, and the Philippines, Taiwan, and Costa Rica have all indicated a desire to enter it as well. India will have to strike an accommodation of its own to the new pact. As for China, the great dark shadow overhanging TPP, Japan's decision as 2013 to enter negotiations with the U.S. precipitated a move on the part of the somewhat chastened, uh, of its somewhat chastened Beijing to enter trade talks with both Korea, which is, uh, which is now also approaching TPP, and Japan. It is even possible, as, as speculated uh, by another expert, that TTP will enable the United States, quote, to direct the future economic order in the, age, in the Asian region for decades to come. TTP may present a serious potential danger to the EU. The recipient of about half of American exports, Asia is a natural market for US products. According to here, I'll use a name to the trade economist Matthias Bauer. Trade diversion will challenge Europe, not least of all, he adds, because TPP will discipline corporate governance and stimulate investment competition as well as innovation. It is, in other words, anything but surprising that not wanting to be left out of the banquet, the leaders of the business communities in each of the 28 EU member states strongly uh, endorse TTIP. Yet, they will probably not have seats at the festive table. The chips are simply not in place for a deal. Someone on the European side with the determination of a Shinzo Abe must be on hand to make things work. Abe, as many of you will know, eliminated domestic opposition to the TPP by winning an overwhelming electoral victory in late 2012, but also by defanging, if you want, cutting the legs off the historically powerful and highly protected rice growers lobby, which in Japan was the most powerful uh, opponent of free trade. For its part, the EU is in disarray. The European Commission can no longer lead. The European Parliament is still groping towards a mission. And the member states, as represented in the European Council, just squabble. And each of them represents one or more veto points that can derail the treaty negotiations. TTIP would only have a chance if a united and powerful electoral constituency backed it. This is not the case. From fear of generating public backlash, and with the face of the services directive in mind, the European Commission, at this point running the International Trade Show for Brussels, has done nothing to mobilize mass support for TTIP and prefers to operate, as usual, by stealth. To introduce the, T the, the TTIP into the public forum would, for one thing, involve an embarrassing backhanded mission that the protectionist line, the protectionist line of the present commission has not worked, and most egregiously in the case of high-tech policy, cannot work. More importantly, the obvious, the obvious 
failure, which is evident at every level, of the Euro elites to cope with the unfolding refugee tragedy has discredited Brussels like nothing before it and left in its wake an angry, sullen, mistrustful, and risk-averse public that is in no mood to listen to any big ideas emanating from Brussels. The transatlantic trade and investment partnership will fall victim to the general failure of European institutions. But there is a coda to this dirge. The long-term trends towards international, and economic, uh, international economic and political interdependence described over 50 years ago by the great Harvard economist Gottfried Haberler in its inaugural address to the American Economic Association will continue with or without the EU, perhaps even in spite of it. Europe may no longer play the lead role in expanding world trade as in the 18th and 19th centuries, but the old civilization can get back on track by extending and strengthening the national networks of free trade agreements that have developed quietly over the past decade and which provide the underpinnings for the mega economic union pacts like TPP and, TPP, TPP and TTIP. In such a case, progress might be slow and uneven, but if such modest arrangements can be arrived at by means of the democratic process and supported by public consensus, they may well prove long-lasting. I'm going to take uh, moderator's prerogative and ask the first question. Okay. Actually, it's uh, two questions, so uh, we'll have it out there. Uh, the first one I, I sort of want to put through all of you is the challenges just seem incredible. There's so much we are putting into this deal. This is not a very simple, straightforward trade agreement. There are so many issues involved. Does it make sense that we do this as a single undertaking? We're pushing ahead so far should we break this up into a series of biennial agreements? Uh, should we look at a different architecture uh, in terms of completing this deal? And my second question, I'm just going to throw in there for Michelle. Uh, how do we get Canada and Mexico involved in the regulatory cooperation? I just, this is one thing that I feel like we have to do. And to ignore the United States' two largest trading partners, when we have the RCC already existing between Canada the US and the US and Mexico, can we not integrate these, especially since the Mexicans are opening up their agreement already with the EU? Can we coordinate CETA, the Mexican agreement, and TTIP together and actually have a truly transatlantic deal and not just a US-EU deal? Who wants to start? <laughs> I think it's, 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 it's fairly clear from what I had to say, at least I hope it was, that this is not the time for a mega deal. Uh, it, has, it has some, the, 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 the thing itself obviously has a, has a great deal to recommend it. But in the present mood of Europe, it simply won't float with the public, um, which is defensive, feels besieged, and uh, is troubled by problems that have a much greater urgency than something abstract like a, like a, like, like a trade, trade arrangement that might be economic, uh, economically beneficial in the future. It would, of course, help if the European economy could break out of its, if you want, no-grow, slow-grow uh, slow situation and, and, and you know, grow at reasonably healthy rates. But I don't, see that the, I, I don't think this is going to happen soon. Um, in the, lack of, in the lack of any uh, substantial economic change and a real growth trajectory that, one, that the public can see and feel, not just one-tenth of one percent uh, on, on, on an, an abstract index, until that happens, which may be a matter of years, uh, the mood's going to stay, stay the same. The, the, kind of, the kind of scandals that are now breaking across Europe, I think, further undermine the case for TT and TTIP uh, in the public mind, but elsewhere. I mean, the Volkswagen scandal means there's, there are many, many parts to it. But one important point is that there is no clear uh, separation of interest be between the responsibility of Brussels and the responsibility of states for, for regulating emissions, pollution from automobiles. Um, the, the, the EU makes great claims and is making great claims of its potential as a regulator. But if they, can't get it, if they couldn't get it right here, what does that say about you know, more ambitious attempts broader regulations with more far-reaching consequences in the future. It undermines, you know, obviously the credibility of the union. Uh, that is a very important issue. Another issue is, is, is the safe harbor thing. That it's all, much, much of this came up in, in the keynote address today, so I'm not telling you anything that you haven't heard already, um, perhaps expressing it in a slightly different way. But um, the safe harbor issue undercuts an agreement that has been, I believe, in effect for 13 years. Uh, and it's based on the notion that the web is seam seamless. 
So the EU now has, and admittedly this is a court decision, and not, but it's fully consistent with the policy of, 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 of the commission itself, which has been punitive towards, towards the giant you know, platforms and so on. They're very much mistrusted, and there is an agenda there. They want, they want to reduce their power by whatever means is possible, possible. Even, even at great cost to the, to the, to the uh, European, if you want, domestic economy, which is going to have to duplicate a lot of facilities. In order, to, in order to meet the, um, the specifications of, 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 of the Commission's regressive policy. So the, 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 the European Court of Justice, was, was, I, you can't call it simply an enforcement arm of the Union, but it is, largely plays that role. And so, as I say, this, they talk about Snowden, they talk about privacy, but what they're really thinking about is the power of America, the American IT industry that seems to be you know, inundating Europe and even threatening you know, the, the, the front-running industries, like the automobile industry. That, that which scares, especially for, especially scares the Germans. Anyway, so I think for for these general reasons and a lot more that I could probably give you, uh, if I could, you know, dominate the floor, which I don't intend to do, the only the way that it can work is piecemeal building incrementally on um, on, on on developments that are in part already in place. But also, I I can't get into this because this is not about the EU, but a much more fundamental um, reconfiguration of the EU is going to be necessary to work to, to make work, deals like this in the work in the future. And they involve political devolution and, um, uh, and also, I believe, changing, changing, changing the, the rules governing the, uh, the single currency. Uh, Gary, Michelle, you Why don't you go first? You go first. Okay. Um, I think that the first question about does it make sense with a single undertaking, we need to remember the fact that this will be a living agreement. So there will be issues that are kicking the can down the road, particularly in the regulatory um, arena. I think that when you think about this as a single undertaking, um, if you look at the other free trade agreements, what will be the politicization and the ratification process if it is multiple deals? Um, I think that would be quite difficult um, to do. I do agree that it's going to be phased in. It's going to take a long time to see the benefits. But I think about the ratification process, and I can't emphasize how important I think that everybody's so focused in this town on safe harbors right now, how potentially important the uh, court case will be with Singapore. Because if it is a mixed agreement, that means that the nation states will all have the ratification process. Um, right now, it could be, um, you know, everybody talks about the European Parliament. What will its role be? I want to remind everybody, but since Lisbon, the Parliament has had a lot more important role in trade negotiations. In 2010 and 2011, it actually came to the floor of the European Parliament 20 and 18 trade-related agreements. So TTIP isn't going to be its first experience. And I'm also worried about the mixed undertaking decision because that will potentially mean that nation states will have to ratify it. And there are 13 states in Europe that could technically have referendums. Um, so, you know, the more we get it done in one agreement, the less we could potentially have future battles down the road and mobilization of, of uh, political opinion. In terms of the second issue, in terms of the regulatory issue, hmm. um, I do want to emphasize that it is not just transatlantically that the US and the EU engage in regulatory cooperation. I can't emphasize how important it is the other international forums for medical devices, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, where there are other players. Um, the second issue, I think, in terms of regulatory cooperation, uh, including sort of Canada, Mexico, et al., do it in international standards setting bodies, do it in international forums. That would be sort of my uh, suggestion. And part of this is also driven by Canadian politics. I mean, Canada is the one pushing dual bilateralism. So it's not sort of an EU issue or a TTIP issue. Um, but there are provisions in CETA 
you know, in the auto sector. So there, you know, they are talking about this, you know, there are provisions in CETA if TTIP happens. So there are certain provisions, but you might also, Gary would speak to this, but what the Canadians got out of TPP and what the Canadian and uh, Canadians got out of CETA in procurement, perhaps, you know, are we really going to see the same thing in the United States? So, you know, the deals are not identical. Uh, well, I knew you've asked a very provocative question. Um, I guess the, the place I would start is that the uh, the next president should uh, convene a group of uh, wise women and wise men in the U.S. and decide whether John Gilliam is right. If 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 uh, if the EU is incompetent to carry through this negotiation, you know, you give it a kind of a quiet death by just not reviving it. And, and that's a big question. Uh, that's not, that's the kind of question that some people in the CIA are pretty good at talking about and NSA and so on. Anyway, I would say that is a big question. If you decide there's incompetence there or maybe here, then you just let it quietly die. Now, the if the next president comes to a, a more optimistic take on that question than, than John does, uh, and that president is inclined to uh, carry out the TTIP project, the first thing that she or he will want to do is give it her or his own stamp. That's the record of all our trade agreements. So they will want maybe want to change the name, um, change the scope, and so forth. That's exactly what Obama did with TPP, uh, but it's happened before with Clinton on the side agreements and so on um, with NAFTA. Now, the next president, well, it's possible. I mean, there's there some people in the, in the running who could have a worse relationship with Mexico and Canada than, than President Obama. Uh, assuming that they don't make it through the primary, it would be hard to have a worse relationship with with Mexico and Canada than we now have under President Obama. It's been very discouraging. And I think if the next president is inclined to be an internationalist, uh, she or he uh, could very well expand the scope by making it a North America, you know, Europe agreement, maybe give it a new name, et cetera. At the same time, um, you know, maybe uh, be less ambitious, at least as a big instantaneous package, but instead go in the sequential issue-by-issue uh, issue approach with, you know, it's kind of small uh, steps that, uh, that encourage the business community at least to believe in this effort. All right, thank you. I'd like to take some questions from the audience. If you could raise your hand, uh, please state your name and affiliation when you get the mic, and uh, we'll bring it up. Uh, Ted? Yeah. Or you can talk really loud. Uh, Ted Alden from the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, I want to ask a question. If you look at the first panel, you have Frederick Erickson saying TTIP is about making the United States the 29th member of the EU. On this panel, we've got John Gillingham saying TTIP is going to transform, if it's successful, which I will acknowledge that he doesn't think it will be, but if it were that TTIP would transform the EU into a more American style of capitalism. I'm kind of interested in Michelle and Gary's perspective. Do you see TTIP dragging the United States more towards a European model of capitalism, or do you see it the other way around, the United States pulling Europe towards a more American-style capitalism? Uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks, Edward. Um, you know, uh, the U.S. is not going to uh, become the 29th member in any way, shape, or form. I mean, even this uh, fairly modest and not so outrageous proposal for a, uh, a permanent court for handling investment disputes, Congress won't buy that. Um, we're allergic to international courts. The WTO appellate body got through in a very unusual time and kind of by a sleight of hand, uh, but uh, we're not going to have more of those. And then all the other 
29th member. The only, the only constituency which would be in favor of the 29th member approach is the AFL-CIO, which would like all the labor provisions that operate in Europe and uh, more or less guarantee 10% unemployment as a permanent fixture of life. Uh, I could, somebody may want to rebut me on that, but I think it's, it's, it's actually the, the, the result. And uh, unfortunately for the AFL-CIO, they represent kind of less than 10% of the American workforce. So that, that's not gonna go through. Now, the other outcome uh, is only slightly less implausible, but if Europe wants to grow, I mean, if there are leaders in Europe who really want to stimulate growth in the com continent, obviously there are macro projects they need to do, but they also need to adopt more American-style uh, business practices and capitalism, and some of them may want to do that. So I would be more towards that end than the former end. That's a very, very tough question. Uh, I, I suppose, you know, I'm from Britain, so perhaps, you know, the United States might not be the 29th, but it might be the 28th if the way the polls are going. Um, in terms of uh, the couple of things I will say to you is that the notion of a European model of capitalism strikes me as very, very odd. You know, if I'm in Greece, my model of capitalism with austerity measures being imposed by an external body is going to look very different than a Nordic model of capitalism or a German model of capitalism. So I think, you know, we've got very different welfare state models, very different industrial relations models. Despite the EU, there's a lot of variation on the ground. So from that point of view, what model are we talking about? Um, the second issue is that the way I think this morning was saying is that business society models have evolved and we seem to have a little bit more intrusion in terms of our economies. Yes, we've got the intrusion of austerity measures and so forth and we've got growing income inequality. Um, but we're coupling that with something else that perhaps is, you know, John was talking about populism emerging in Europe, but I would also argue about the, um, the challenges to the nation state. They're not just coming because of populism and populist parties, and they're not just coming because of austerity measures. They're coming because people are voting with their feet, you know, Scotland, Catalonia, that's also going to have an impact on the level of unity within Europe. So um, the one thing to think about, and that I hear very little in the TTIP um, talks I go to, is one of the most important issues there is state-owned enterprises is one of the big issues there. And presumably that's directed at those, because of in lack of sort of rules of international law, that's directed at those that, you know, are giving subsidies and so forth, and it's sort of third countries. Um, but the question becomes, given the recession and crisis, how much of that intervention has Europe done? So are we speaking with two voices here? I would say that the long-term threat is not that... Um, we're going to be colonized by Europe. The Europeans feel that they're being colonized by us. And I think with, with, more, with more justification. I mean, if you take a look at the, the, the changes that have come across the European economy uh, over the last 50 years, you can't avoid the word Americanization. Multinationals, Eurodollar markets. Um, and now, of course, the most recent is, is, is the iTech invasion. I mean, there's nothing in Europe on, remotely on the same scale. And there's nothing that they can really do to defend themselves against it because its, it's, 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 it's influence you know, extends not only to, to, the, to, the, to the state level, it extends through the family, it extends through the manners and, 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 um, and values of young people. Uh, these are, you can't defend against these things very easily. Borders are becoming much more porous. Uh, as a result. And, that, and, and other kinds of borders, as I say, social boundaries and so on and so forth, are disappearing. This is, a, this is an elusive phenomenon, and it's not very well understood. But um, the, it seems to me that if, if, if we're talking about a, a more organized uh, kind of capitalism, if you want to use these old-fashioned terms, uh, as a kind of threat that it comes from China, it doesn't come from Europe. The new kind of forms of state cap the form of state capitalism is available. I mean, China, given the numbers and so on and the dynamism of that society, is going to represent some sort of a uh, polar alternative to what we think we stand for here. Okay, take another question from the audience. Okay. Yeah, right over here. 
Yes, <coughs> Jean-François Boitin. Uh, one, one question to uh, Michel again about this idea of having a living agreement. Uh, we have had 20 years of these various acronyms, uh, TABD, TABC, TA, whatever, uh, concentrating exclusively on regulatory cooperation. And the result after 20, 20 years is essentially zilch. So what makes you believe that if we have a living agreement, 20 years, we'll have, in 20 years, we'll have a different result. And a quick comment to uh, uh, Professor Gillingham, because I find it somewhat ironic that uh, <coughs> he denounces populism and then uses all these populist arguments against Brussels and so on. Uh, and true, the European system is not great, especially when you look at the very smooth functioning of institutions in this city. Uh, <coughs> but uh, some, somehow, as a European consumer, I can attest to the very uh, good work that has been done by the Commission uh, on the single market, which is actually, in some ways, more of a single market than the US internal market. Uh, look at government procurement, for example. <laughs> Uh, and as a consumer, I can benefit from prices on my TV internet bundles or on my aircraft tickets that cost me a fourth of what they cost in this country because the Commission has been doing a good work as an enforcer of competition rules. There's a question that was for you. Um, you're asking, yeah, um, you're, do you want to talk? Take no, that's, a, that's okay. I mean, you're asking okay. if the single market, you know, the one thing that I, I really would like to see is that the EU has gone through a process of modernizing its single market and coming up with new proposals to sort of modernize. And I think that should be linked more closely to TTIP, given what's in there. So do you want to elaborate a little bit more what you're, you know... <laughs> Yeah. Project. Yes. I mean, yes, it is a long-term project. My issue is, is that my concern is that we're sort of having these TTIP discussions as if we do, as if it's a blank slate, as if we haven't learned anything over the past 20 years. I mean, 1998, we started having our first mutual recognition agreements, but we haven't had them just with the United States. We've also had them with Canada. And there are areas, there are areas where, you know, for the amount of time and effort we put into them, the results seem from a business point of view very marginal. But there have been some success stories, particularly in a couple of, uh, you know, in a few areas. But um, the question is also very important that mutual recognition of, say, testing and certification is not the same as mutual recognition within the EU single market. Within the EU single market, we have a court and we have a set of legal rulings. Mutual recognition is really about testing, really about certification, and I don't think we will sort of move in the area of mutual recognition of product standards. I think that's so difficult. The term harmonization, I think, is very, very unhelpful. Um, because if we have, as you pointed out, two different models of capitalism, why are we using this language? But I do think we've had some success, and what I'd like to see is let's look at what success we've had in other parts of the world, for example, New Zealand, Australia, or for example, the effort in Canada with the AIT to try and deal with Canadian internal barriers. What are all these lessons to promote free trade and internal market access? What can we borrow from them? But also we need to be very clear that given the legal structure in the EU, we're not replicating the EU single market because as somebody points out, you know, Cato doesn't want more institutions and we certainly wouldn't want a European Court of Justice transatlanticized. I'm not sure if that addresses directly your question or not. I'd like to take at least one more question from the audience while we have time. Thank you. I'm Courtney Vaughan, and thanks to the panel. I was a little late, so I'm not sure it was covered. But what sort of consideration has been given for this particular trade 
and investment partnership in the context of the digital economy and in particular because this is a long-term partnership we're hoping to establish 20 years the world is a different place we have digitization and it seems like certain digital services could be a significant contribution to GDP in any country across the world. Are there any talks as yet? Is it too early or is it irrelevant? Well, I think that uh, these digitalization, um, I'm not an expert in the, in, on the TP, uh, TTP, but the, it's, uh, they have been included in the treaty. The problem, the obstacle to it in, uh, in, in Europe is, is the European Commission and its determination to enforce content rules. They're basically what they are. Um, how, long this will, how long this opposition will continue and what sort of results it will bring is difficult to say at this point because the battle's still being fought. But, I mean, one would hope that the same provisions that included in, in the Pacific Pact could be included in, in the Transatlantic Pact, too. Let me say a little bit about the digital. I, it's a great question because digital is the enormous pathway for more trade and services, so it's extremely, uh, uh, the opportunities are enormous. And uh, between U.S. and Europe, it should be possible to, you know, develop the, the kind of a, a template for uh, digital commerce around the whole globe. However, however, we've had uh, a couple of setbacks. And the uh, ECJ case is a huge setback. Um, you know, maybe the clever lawyers in the European Commission will work around and will get a new type of safe harbor agreement. The one that we had was working quite nicely for a while. Um, now it's up in the air. Uh, so that's, uh, that's not a good sign. The other uh, setback, and you could say the ECJ decision was influenced by this, is of course Snowden and the NSA. But, um, uh, you know, make mo no mistake, there's nothing in the digital privacy uh, suggestions that have been put out by some European forces which would in, all in any way restrict the NSA. You know, you can locate all the servers wherever you want in the Bank of France if you think that's a great place to have servers, you know, down in their vaults with the gold. Uh, the, the NSA can get to them there as well as any place else. So what's happening is that this notion about consumer privacy is being turned into a device for protection. Protection outright. Locate the servers here, then locate the personnel here and so forth and destroy a lot of the gains and efficiency that can come from consolidating work in, in one place, both of the people and of the, of the equipment. So instead of being the pathway for the future, uh, you know, it's the pathway to the past, which is going on right now. Um, the privacy issue, the, the commercial espionage issue, the military espionage issues, those can only be dealt with at a state-to-state -state level. And the U.S. can agree on various forms of abstinence and so on, and so can Europe. The European, uh, just uh, to one more offhand remark, I mean, the French are every bit as good as spying as the NSA. It's just that they keep it secret. <laughs> all right, thank you all for your comments. Uh, I'm asking you all to remain seated. The next panel will proceed immediately after we leave the stage, so don't go anywhere. And please join me in thanking both John, Michelle, and Gary for their comments. Today.